0: everybody And I know that I like you, baby I'm Baby girl, you know Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of Kicking with Keeler here on Full Press Radio episode number 127. Thanks for kicking with me, Ricky Keeler, here on a Saturday afternoon as we get you set for the NFL playoffs that begin, well, later today. Bengals-Titans at 4.30, Niners-Packers at 8, and then tomorrow afternoon, Rams and Bucks at 3, Bills and Chiefs at 6.30. Of course, we'll start the show looking back at wildcard weekend and the whole theory expanded playoffs should not exist. Uh, we'll t- we'll touch on that and then we'll do we'll rank the games from 1 to 4, break them down, we'll do word association a little bit later. But we'll look ahead to Tuesday and why is Tuesday so important? It is the announcement of who makes it or who doesn't make it in to the MLB Hall of Fame. Of course, baseball's not been the news over the last few months cuz of the lockout. Uh, but what is at stake on Tuesday? We'll talk about that. And then we'll do a little NBA and college basketball and Australian Open at the end of the show. Want to remind you, you can tweet me on Twitter at Rick 555. It's at R-E-C-K, letter I, Nader like a Terminator, and then three fives, Rick 555. You can tweet us on Twitter at FP underscore coverage and at Full Press Radio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You're your podcast. Just search King with Keeler. Chances are that's where you will find it. But I want to hear from you. Tell them what you like, what you don't like. You can email me, rickjkeeler at gmail.com. I'm very happy to hear from you. And download the Full Press Coverage app on your iOS or Android device. All of our articles are there, podcasts, live shows. Um, just recording this app that we did, FPC NFL Saturday, previewing the two Saturday games. Then we'll be back tomorrow morning, Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Um, to preview the two Sunday games. Be sure to check that out. Myself, Ian London, the founder of the site, is the host, along with FPC Chiefs writer Braden Holacek and FPC Packers writer Kyle Stenner, both of whom you have heard on the show at some point over the last year or so. So let's take a brief look back at Wild Card Weekend. And I was hearing all week that the seven seeds just don't belong. they got to get rid of expanded playoffs. doesn't make any sense. Because the Eagles put up a no-show against Tampa Bay. And Pittsburgh, after the T.J. Watt fumble recovery, could not stop Patrick Mahomes in his five touchdowns. So let me put a wrinkle into that argument just a little bit. And say, while there is parity in the NFL... There isn't really as much parity as we think. Five of the eight teams that are left standing going into today are teams that were in this round last year. Chiefs, Bills, Packers, Bucks, Rams. Two other teams, the Niners and Titans, were in this situation two years ago. And San Francisco was injury riddled last year, so it makes sense why they weren't here. You're still getting about three or four different teams that make the playoffs each year, so there is parity there. But if the same five, six out of the eight in division rounds are the same, then they're just really it's just an established tier that we're on in the NFL, and the rest are just not there. Because let's put it this way. If the seven seed in the AFC was Jonathan Taylor and the Colts, or Justin Herbert and the Chargers, That 7-2 game would have been much more appealing than it was because as good of a story as Ben Roethlisberger making the playoffs and getting one last game in his career, the Steelers had no shot against the Chiefs. You look at the New England Buffalo game. Josh Allen playing a a perfect game. No punts, no turnovers, all touchdowns. Bill Belichick basically saying to him after the game, you have no answers for him. So even if that game, the only chance the Patriots had in that game was there had to be a blizzard. So that game was not going to change regardless of the format. And look at New England going forward, being I'm a Patriots fan. I'll talk about them real quick. Mac Jones wasn't the sole problem why they stunk it up last Saturday. Yes, he did have two interceptions. One of them was a great play by Micah Hyde. Did have two touchdowns as well. The problem was the Patriot defense has been a no-show for the last month. Their linebackers are old. They had no depth in the secondary outside of J.C. Jackson. And they couldn't get any pressure on the quarterback. Josh Allen just ran rough shot on him. And if the Patriots are going to go up against Josh Allen for the next five years, they need to get guys that can rush the quarterback and keep Josh Allen in the pocket. Because if not, Josh Allen will make you pay every single time. So while it's a successful year for New England, it's not a shock. It's a shock they got blown out by 30, but not a surprise they lost that game to Buffalo. I thought the Bills were the better team anyway. I would have been stunned, not stunned, but mildly shocked if New England had beaten the Bills. Rams, that was a shocker too. 34-11 over the Cardinals. Kyler Murray did not show up to his first playoff game. Two interceptions, a pick six. Rams were in complete control of that game from the onset. Uh, Matthew Stafford with a couple of good throws. Odell Beckham Jr. Only needed to throw 17 passes because the Rams defense was doing a fantastic job and Arizona just wasn't ready for prime time. I think you look at the Cardinals and that team needs DeAndre Hopkins because when you don't have him and you're relying on guys like Christian Kirk... And Rondell Moore—they're really the same type of wide receiver. There's no true deep threat. Hopkins is that deep threat, big playmaker that that offense was lacking down the stretch, and it cost them big time in the wild card game. But there is now pressure on Cliff Kingsbury because it's in the last couple of years missed the playoffs and then got blown out in a wild card game. Now you got to take that next step if you're Arizona, which in this division is not easy when you have the Rams and a Niners team that continues to get better and Seattle, which is in rebu- rebuild mode, but. The West is not easy for Arizona, so keep that in mind going into the soft season. We talked about Philly disappointing against Tampa Bay, although not shocked. The weather didn't turn to a monsoon, and since that was the case, as long as the Bucks got ahead early, which they did, scored on the first drive, then took about a 17-0 lead, and at that point, Jalen Hurts could not come from behind to beat them. They're not a team built to play from behind. Same thing with New England, and that's why I would argue if you're an underdog... Why are you deferring the coin toss? I get that it gives you a double possession at the end of the half, which is what you ultimately want. But if you're the underdog, get the ball first, get the lead and play on your terms. It is way more important to dictate the game than to get a double possession at the end of the half. Because you, in the game, in this day and age in the NFL where it's about contrasting styles and styles make fights, then you have to play the game the way you want to play the game. And if you don't, that's your own problem. So I'd be interested to see if that, st- that strategy changes as we get further along in the postseason, but I don't think we have games that are that much lopsided in terms of spreads. So that you have to worry about that necessarily. Cincinnati gets its first playoff win over Vegas. That wasn't too big a surprise. Bengals came out in the first half, took a 20-13 to 13 lead. Of course, there was the controversy with Jerome Boger's crew about blowing the the whistle, and then Joe Burrow throws touchdown to Tyler Boyd. The refs obviously got that one wrong. I'm shocked they could get that one wrong, especially in a day and age where the whistle blows, play stops immediately. It's too easy to just replay the down. That's a poor job by the NFL. And officiating was poor throughout the entire round of last week. I mean, just call it as you see it. I'm not going to be the Dallas Cowboys and blame officiating for why you lost, but... You can't make that mistake in a playoff game. You just can't. And while the Raiders weren't denied an opportunity to win, that's six points that ultimately they lost by seven. So it's hard to ignore, necessarily. Uh, But still a respectable effort from Vegas. Derek Carr is only going to get, I think, had a really good year considering all the adversity around him. We'll see what the Raiders do for head coach. There's talk about Josh McDaniels. I think he'd be a good fit for Vegas. I think he could do good things with Derek Carr. And that offense with Waller and Renfro, Jacobs, there's pieces there. It would be a big loss in New England if he left. You talk about a Patriot team that would have no defense, no clear leader on the defensive coordinator spot. They share it with Drive Mayo, Steve Belichick, Bill's son, and Bill himself. Now you take away Mac Jones' offensive coordinator away, be two offensive coordinators in two years. That's a little tricky. But Vegas, I think, is kind of looking to make Patriots West out there. If they do bring a guy like um, Ziegler maybe to be the, the general manager with Meg Mayock gone, but I think if you're a Raiders fan, you're still happy with the way the season went. You made the playoffs and people didn't think you could, so I think you take that. And finally, the game in Dallas. Right, what I would I where I would argue, Mike McCarthy should not be employed by the Cowboys. The Dallas team that committed 14 penalties. It's a Dallas team that all year long struggled with clock management. They did it again at the end of the game. And you could blame Zach Prescott as well. He's got to know to give the ball to the official to set the ball to spike it and how much time you need to spike the ball. Because for McCarthy to call a quarterback draw in that situation, I didn't get that at all because you had all the momentum in your hands. You were getting the ball to the sidelines. You were doing everything you needed to do. But overall, it's the first half. You look at this Cowboys team going forward. They dominate in a weak division. The NFC stinks. I know Philly made the playoffs, but the NFC is kind of stinks. And it's a Dallas team that does not run the football well. Zeke is getting old quickly. You can't rely on Zeke Elliott now as an elite number one running back. It just doesn't happen. Tony Pollard may be the guy on the rise, but if he is the guy on the rise, give him more, give him the ball more than four times for 14 yards. Then you have Dallas try a fake punt. They make the fake punt, and they try to get the Niners to call a timeout by leaving the punt unit on. The Niners are like, okay, we'll just stay here make you hike a play. So, McCarthy got out coached by Kyle Shanahan. And with Kellen Moore interviewing for jobs and Dan Quinn interviewing for jobs, I think Jerry Jones looks at it and says, if I'm going to lose my entire coaching staff potentially, and there hasn't been any head coaching hirings yet on the vacancies, it's been a GM hire. If I'm going to lose Kellen Moore and I'm going to lose Dan Quinn, while, I'm going to keep McCarthy. So, I think that situation is still up in the air. But Mike McCarthy did nothing to keep his job. In fact, if you're a Cowboys fan, you're embarrassed because this is a team that was supposed to make a run in the Super Bowl. This is a team that had one of the best offenses in football, a defense led by a talented rookie, Micah Parsons, that was getting pressure on the quarterback, that was making mistakes, that was nearly getting Jimmy Garoppolo to give them the game right back. It was 23-7 for the Niners in the fourth quarter, and they almost blew the game. So while you're encouraged if you're a Niners fan, we're going to get into that and we break down the divisional playoff game in the next segment. You're still scratching your head. Can you win a game with Jimmy Garoppolo throws a touchdown? You look at his stats this season. Jimmy Garoppolo has only four interceptions in wins. He has nine in losses, which makes the Dallas game weird because you would think if he doesn't throw a touchdown, he lose the game. And normally you would, but Devo Samuel was good on the ground. Elijah Mitchell ran it almost 30 times for 100 yards. The Niners controlled the line of scrimmage. They got pressure on the quarterback. Had the ball for 34 minutes. That's going to be a, a, a formula for success. And they didn't really have a penalty until the second half. They had nine penalties in the game, but a lot of those were in the second half. So the Niners dominated that football game from start to finish necessarily. Just almost gave the game away. So for Dallas to kind of get outplayed at home, and that game is more lopsided than the score indicates, that's an ugly performance. And Jerry Jones has to take note of that because you can't take solace in the fact that, yeah, you won the division, because, again, the division's garbage. So the Cowboys need to take a good look in the mirror, because if you're going to pick Dak Prescott like an elite quarterback, Dak Prescott has to win a game like that. When he's got the clear quarterback edge over Jimmy Garoppolo, you've got to win that game. And at least get yourself to Tampa and give yourself a fight because that's a missed opportunity for the Cowboys because we said this last week if they got to Tampa the following week they almost beat Tampa in week one they would have had a good opportunity but just making the same mistakes over and over and over again it's going to cost you in this kind of situation something to keep that in mind the one GM hire I mentioned earlier the Giants bringing in Joe Shane the assistant GM from the Bills I like that move. A lot of people love Shane in the industry. I think if they're looking to make themselves back to relevance, you go out and you either hire Brian Dables, the opportunity the, the of the Bills to be your head coach. You go out and you hire Brian Flores. I don't even think Dan Quinn would be a bad hire. So I don't think Shane could mess this up outside of just keeping Patrick Graham making him the head coach. Shane's got the right plan. He's been helped leading a Bills team that's been excellent over the last few years. Uh, I was listening to a podcast that I think Chris Collinsworth did that was talking about how Shane was big on trying to get Josh Allen in that draft a few years ago. So if you're a Giants fan, one thing you're also encouraged by is John Mara is going to let Shane control the operations. The ownership is not going to interfere. And for an for a organization that has relied on keeping things internal for years, the fact they are finally willing to go external and willing to get an outside opinion and get an outside input on the situation that speaks volumes and that is a step in where the Giants have been embarrassing for the last few years they've at least now put themselves in the right direction and if they can get Flores who from all reports wants this job and Brian Flores is going to be more motivated to succeed after getting that weird exit from Miami and Brian Flores isn't tied to a specific quarterback because I don't think he'd necessarily be tied to Daniel Jones it could work and in a division that's bad, you can get yourself back to playoff contention pretty quickly. Washington doesn't have a quarterback, and the Eagles do have three first-round picks, but I even think they're not so sure what Jalen Hurts is yet. I would believe in him because I was listening to, I was watching Good Morning Football Weekend this morning, and Mike Garafolo was talking about how Jalen Hurts has had the same offensive coordinator for the two in a back-to-back year since he was in high school. Like if that alone, you got to give Jalen Hurts more of an opportunity. You've got to see what you can do in a system over a sustained period of time. Yes, time is not your friend in the NFL, but it has to be in this case. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woo a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DDL void prohibited by loss. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. So we'll take our first break. We'll come back. We'll we'll rank the divisional round games from 1 to 4. And I'll give you a word that describes the match. And we'll break it down more in depth at the games this weekend. This is Kicking with Keeler here on Full Press Radio. We'll be right back after this. Let's get right into the four divisional playoff games here on Kicking with Keeler. Ricky Keeler back with you. So again, we're going to rank them 4 to 1. And then as we break them down, we'll give you a word to describe each one. That's what we do here on Kicking with Keeler. We love word association on this show. So, my number four game, the the game I least am into, but I think all four games have good storylines on them. No spread is bigger than five and a half as of right now, so each game is projected to be at least less than one score. You'll get good drama in each one. And I think, especially in the AFC, you've got the four best teams. And I would argue in the NFC, considering the way San Francisco played down the stretch, you've at least got the top three, and San Francisco is a case to be number four. So you've got the right eight teams in this mix. So we'll start at number four. And my number four game is Bengals-Titans. Now, that doesn't mean it's a bad game because my, my word for this game is contrasting styles. Now, what do I mean by that? You've got a Tennessee team that has Derrick Henry back. That, according to Diana Rossini from ESPN, is not going to have a snap count restriction today. But you have a Titan team that wants to play power football, that wants to run it with Henry, could even use Hilliard or Deontay Foreman to think balance out Henry's workload today. I don't think you need to have Derrick Henry run the ball 35 times to win this game. If he ran it about 20 times, maybe use Foreman for about 10, and maybe Hilliard mixes it in. I think you'll be in good shape. Again, it's a Bengals team that while Joe Mixon had a really good year running the football, they want to throw it around with Joe Burrow. They want to use Jamar Chase. They want to use T. Higgins. They want to use Tyler Boyd. And they want to make plays. Because if you look at this Tennessee team, as good as Kevin Byard is at safety, their weakness is in the secondary. Because they can get after you at the quarterback with Simmons and Dupree and Landry. They've got the guys get after the quarterback. And the Bengals offensive line is still a weak part of their team. Tennessee, I think, wants to still can go after Cincinnati because while the Bengals are decent up front with Hendrickson and They have Jesse Bates in the the back of their secondary. I think you could go after Cincinnati's corners as well. So, both these teams can stretch the ball downfield. I think Cincinnati has the edge in the kicking game. McPherson's a better kicker than Bullock. But I think what ultimately decides this game is coaching. And I think Rabel is a better coach than Zach Taylor. That's not saying Taylor hasn't taken leaps and bounds this season and You look at the eight coaches left, it's no shame to be the eighth coach on the list. When you look at Rabel, Shanahan, LaFleur, McVay, Arians, McDermott, and Reed, I mean, who are you putting Taylor over on that list? You can't really make an argument to put him over anybody. But it does not mean he doesn't deserve credit for the job he's done this year. And you look at the Titans, I think they're getting a lot of disrespect nationally. I know a lot of people love to see Joe Burrow win and love the way he plays the game and his confidence is great and his style is great. And, and, and look, that's awesome too. And I love watching Joe Burrow play. But let's look at this Titans team closely. Yes, they have a loss to the Jets. Yes, they have a loss to the Texans. Two of the worst teams in the NFL. And they probably, if you go by the rankings of one seeds in the last 20 years, probably the one of the Worst one seeds when you stack them up. This is a Titan team that beat the Bills. It's a Titan team that beat the Chiefs. They beat the Rams. They beat Indy twice. Tennessee's got some good wins on their schedule. Try to see if they missed one other game besides that. They beat San Francisco, who's in this round now. So, they have good wins. Yes, they've got five losses, but this is a team that I think is ready for the postseason. I think what is expected, what you want to look for is how is Ryan Tannehill handled being the favorite as opposed to being the underdog, as they were a couple years ago when they made it to the AFC Championship game. But the one difference maker, I think, that's going to decide this game, you go to the wide receiver position. It's not Jamar Chase. And I think he'll make a play or two. I think it's A.J. Brown. Go back to the second half against the Niners a few weeks ago when Brown was really the catalyst to that victory. If the offense for the Titans is struggling for the good part of the first half, all it takes is one throw to A.J. Brown to change it. Because I don't think you can trust Julio Jones or Nick Westbrook-Akina or Anthony Furksert or Chester Rogers. It's going to have to be A.J. Brown that makes a play. The Bengals receivers are better than the Titans receivers. But all it takes is one play, and Tannehill is more likely to use his legs than Joe Burrow is. And if Burrow doesn't use his legs in this game, it's the Cincinnati offensive line, that still is the weak part of their team. Burrow takes a lot of hits, a lot of sacks, and Tennessee can bring pressure. I think Ravens become one of the better coaches in the game. And on that alone, and Derrick Henry's return providing a spark to this team, I think I'm sure they feel nationally they're being disrespected. I'll take Tennessee close. Uh, but I think they'll win 23-20. I think they've got enough offense to win this game. And I think defensively, they're going to force Burrow into a mistake or two uh, that leads them to this win. So the Titans win our first game we're looking at. My number three game is also So Actually, they're going to go in order, but I believe it or not. Niners-Packers is number three. That game is the 8-15 one on Fox. And also, by the way, Bengals-Titans quick. Uh, get well soon to Charles Davis, who's recovering from COVID-19. Trent Green is going to be in the booth with Ian Eagle later today. The Niners-Packers, of course, the Niners have won the last three matchups with the Packers in the postseason. And my word for this is fast start. Both these teams are going to need to have fast starts to control the game. If you're the Niners, you want to get a fast start so you can use more of Elijah Mitchell. You can use Debo Samuel. You can not put as much on the arm of Jimmy Garoppolo to win the game. Because you got a quarterback in Garoppolo playing in cold weather at Lambeau, and I know the cold weather narrative can sometimes be overblown. Just look at last week's game in Buffalo. That was the reason why. But how does Garoppolo handle that when he's played in warm weather a lot over the last few years? Something to monitor. Also, he's thrown five Garoppolo's thrown five interceptions in the last three weeks. And hasn't thrown multiple touchdowns in a game since the one in Cincinnati in early December. So the Niners, I don't think, they are going to be able to play from behind if they trail 10-13-0. Now, they did come back early in Week 3 this year, and the Packers had a 27-14 lead. Niners came back, took a one-point lead. Mason Crosby kicked the field goal to win. But I don't think that style is different now. And for the Packers, I want to get Aaron Rodgers throwing early in this game. I want to get Devontae Adams involved, who had a big game in that first matchup. I want to make it so that I control the fight. And if I get a 7-10 point lead or a ten to 13 point lead, I can use Aaron Jones. I can use A.J. Dillon, that one-two punch to maybe not make Aaron Rodgers make too many mistakes. I know he hasn't thrown a pick since he came back from COVID, but also keep in mind, there's a lot of pressure on Aaron Rodgers tonight. The Packers have to get to the Super Bowl maybe even win it to make this season a success for Aaron Rodgers. Because there's a big part of his legacy, and I don't even think it's his national legacy. Because... I look at Aaron Rodgers, and I've said this on this show, and I said it on FPC NFL Saturday earlier today. There's no there's no harm with being Peyton Manning, being one of the best regular season quarterbacks of all time, and cut up short in the playoffs. It's his Lambo legacy that would hurt if he didn't win because he caused all that drama in the— I'm not even talking the vaccine stuff. I'm talking the offseason. All that drama in the offseason, trying to basically do an, an opposite of Brett Favre, And put all that on him. if he were to lose here and then win somewhere else, that hurts him in the eyes of Packers fans. It just does. Nationally, he can get up from it. In Lambeau, eh, not so much. But there's one stat that I dug up earlier today that'll help success for Aaron Rodgers tonight. Aaron Rodgers has thrown multiple touchdowns at each of his last nine postseason games. So two touchdowns or more in nine straight playoff games. The last time he did not throw a touch, two touchdowns or more at a playoff game was january eighteenth, twenty fifteen in the NFC Championship game against Seattle, the game in where Brandon Bostic had the muffed on sidekick. That game he threw two interceptions. And Rodgers has only thrown multiple interceptions in the in a playoff game twice since that game, once the Seattle game and then against the Niners in twenty nineteen in the NFC Championship game. Largely that game, and Roger's Rodgers 31 of 31-39, the Niners dictated the tempo, got a big lead with Mostert and company on the ground, and won that game convincingly. That cannot happen again. Matt LaFleur cannot have a repeat of 2019. Not at home. And just because I think you tend to trust the, yep, the quarterback on the other side, and Aaron Rodgers, who has a lot more to prove, I think has a chip on his shoulder, Give me Green Bay over the Niners. I'll say 30-17. to 17. I think Jimmy Garoppolo makes one mistake or two, and that gives Aaron Rodgers a short field. When you do that, Green Bay is more than likely to make you pay. So I'll take the Packers uh, by a, a 13 points to advance to the NFC Championship game next week. Number My number two game is Rams-Bucks. That's a 3 o'clock game tomorrow at NBC. Rams beat the Buccaneers earlier this year in week three, but there is something to monitor with that. You go back to that Week 3 game in in L.A., Tom Brady didn't turn the ball over. But Matthew Stafford, had one of his best games of the, of the season, he threw for 343 yards, four touchdowns, and a 34-24 win. Tom Brady threw for 432 and a touchdown. But there's something to consider here. The Buccaneers in that game ran it only 13 times for 35 yards. Now, Leonard Fournette is still questionable. With that hamstring injury, we'll see if he gives it a go, and if he does, how healthy is he actually going to be? But you also have Gio Bernard, you have Keyshawn Vaughn, who had a good game last week. You've got to think the Buccaneers will be able to at least have a better rushing attack than they did in the first game. What also hurt, Rob Gronkowski left the game early in that one. Gronk had four catches for 55 yards. And even in that game, Tom Brady spread the ball around. Yes, Evans had eight for 106. Chris Godwin wasn't there, but Tyler Johnson had three catches for 63. Gio Bernard, nine catches for 51. Cameron Brate four catches for 35. So Brady can spread it around and get the ball out quick. Yes, he was sacked three times, and there is question marks in this Bucks offensive line. Tristan Wirfs, the right tackle who left the game last week, Ryan Jensen, the center. That's the West for disaster when you're going up against the likes of Aaron Donald and Von Miller. And this Rams front seven, Leonard Floyd being another one. But one of the things that hurts the Rams in this game, I think, the lack of help at safety. I know Eric Weddle's still there, but the Rams still without Taylor Rapp in the back of that secondary. And one of the things you know when you're throwing young safeties or veteran safeties at Tom Brady, if he gets time in the pocket, one of the things you saw last week is Brady can get the ball out quick. And I think Tom can do that. I think he's fully capable of, of making the quick throw. And that's why I think Gio Bernard could be kind of the James White, Shane Vereen in this kind of game, if you go back to old Patriot days, where he could kind of have that guy that makes that big throw on third down. And I also think this time around, if Matthew Stafford has to throw more than 25 times, can he deliver? Tony Michelle, I think, needs to be more of the game plan in this game. 20 carries, 67 yards back in week three, in a game Daryl Henderson did not play, of course. That logic applies here. And the Rams have the wide receivers in Cup and Beckham. To attack a Buck secondary, that's not exactly the strongest unit out there. But being that this game is in Tampa, being that Tampa has lost only one game at home this year, and that was to New Orleans, I just think Tom Brady's not losing at home. I know the Rams have the defense, but in terms of the quarterback battle, I think I'll take Brady over Stafford. And I think Tampa gets the ball at the end. It's a close game down to the wire, but I'll think I'll take 34-31. The Buccaneers find a way to win in advance. Tom Brady hasn't lost in the divisional round since that Jet game like 10 years ago. The can't wait game. I think the Rams will have to wait to have a chance to move on. So I will give the Bucks the win. It'll be Tampa Bay at Green Bay rematch of last year's NFC Championship game. Which would be fitting because in the end you'd have to then Aaron Rodgers like Peyton Mannington in 2006 had to get through Tom Brady to make a Super Bowl. And then finally the number one game of the week Bills Chiefs 630 CBS and my word for this is they're still here. Now what do I mean by they're still here? I think people are forgetting about the Chiefs. And I'm not hating on Bills Mafia. I love Bills Mafia. They're great people. I have a friend who's a Bills fan. And I'm rooting for I'm rooting for him and the happiness for him. And I'm rooting for Josh Allen because I love watching him play. And I know the Bills beat the Chiefs earlier this season. But keep a couple things in mind. Chris Jones is not there for the Chiefs in that first matchup. That makes a big difference, this Chiefs defense is night and day compared to that matchup. Allen in that game threw 15 of 26 for 315 and three touchdowns. Now, can Josh Allen have another perfect game? I'm not so sure. Because I think the Chiefs can run the football a lot better than they did in that first game, and now you've got more options with Alaire and Williams and McKinnon and- Hill and Kelsey, I think, they can get more involved in this game. You saw the Chiefs absolutely dominate. I think we're dismissing Patrick Mahomes a little too quickly. We talked about Aaron Rodgers. This is Patrick Mahomes' stats lines the last five games. In the last five games, he has thrown 15 touchdowns to two interceptions. The last time Patrick Mahomes did not throw more than one touchdown in a game was back on October 20... No, hold on. Wait a second was back on December 5th against Denver. So since that Denver game, the first one, 15 touchdowns, two interceptions. And I've kind of used the Chiefs as the new Patriots. Now what I mean by it is the new Patriots. I've said this, with the old Patriot dynasty logic, you kind of apply to that because they're two wins away from their third Super Bowl in a row. Whenever you doubt a champion the champion usually rises to the occasion. Does anybody actually believe the Chiefs are going to lose back-to-back games to Buffalo at home in Arrowhead, one of the toughest places to play in the NFL? Where they're going to be able to get pressure on Josh Allen. Something they, they didn't have one sack in Week 5. Allen wasn't sacked once last week. And credit that Bill's offensive line. They built, they've done a good job building from the trenches in. Can they really do that again? They're going to have to need that game to do it again. And yes, the Bills have, I think, a more variety of weapons with Knox, and you can use Beasley and Sanders in, in different ways, and, and Davis in different ways. Chiefs, if you've seen Pringle break out lately, you've seen Hardman break out lately. I think the Chiefs had the edge in the kicking game. I think they had the edge on special teams. And it's going to be a fun matchup between McDermott and Reed. Who takes a gamble here and goes for it? Who decides to play field position? Um, who makes that big coaching blunder? Because McDermott's proven to be a really good coach. Something changed, and people point to the, the Patriot game as when it changed for the Bills. I would actually point the opposite. I think it changed in the second half in Tampa the week after. Because the Bucks were blowing the doors off the Bills in the first half. I don't know what Sean McDermott said in the locker room at halftime in that game. But something clicked where the Bills didn't win, but they forced the game into overtime against Tampa. And Brady threw the touchdown to Perriman to win the game. And then the Bills have been a better team ever since. They had a little bit of a hiccup against Atlanta where they struggled but still won the game. I'm not dismissing the Bills, but I've seen all week everybody picking the Bills. And I think it's sentiment. It's their time. The Bills are finally going to get to a Super Bowl. They're going to finally avenge the old four straight losses from the 90s. And, and look, it's great. I'd love that for Josh Allen. Don't underestimate a champion. And as of right now, Patrick Mahomes is the one with the ring on his finger going into the game. Kansas City wins 33-30. High-scoring football game. Comes down to the wire. It's going to be really entertaining. Romo's going to have some fun exclamations. Here we go, and all that fun stuff. Chiefs win. It'll be Chiefs-Titans in in Nashville. It'll be Bucks-Packers at Lambeau. And that should be for a lot of fun drama in the championship game. You can tell me you disagree all you want. Again, at Rickinator555 on Twitter. And I'd love to hear from Bills fans. I don't hate you guys. I respect you guys. But in the end, I'm taking the team that has proven it in this situation over and over. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Swimsuit check. Sunscreen check. Phone charger check. All four home teams Titans, Packers, Bucks, Chiefs. And really when you think about it, out of the six games were played last week, home teams went five and one. Only loss was the Cowboys. That should set the case out. Maybe the, the league this year will be talking about all the parity and all the any given Sundays, if the final four teams left for the top two seed in each conference. Could kinda go both ways. Uh, so we'll take a break. We will come back and do a little baseball and what to expect Tuesday and maybe why you should not be surprised if something happens. Stay tuned for that here on Kicking with Keeler on Full Press Radio. Switching over to baseball here on Kicking with Keeler on Full Press Radio. And, and yes, there is some interesting news this week that the MLB and MLBPA are going to meet on Monday... The player association will review their counterproposal what the owners gave in the first meeting. It'll be in person, which is great news, but still not great progress in terms of hopefully getting spring training started on time, getting the season started on time. There will be baseball at some point, but there's still a lot of frustration from fans, as I'm sure all of you are feeling at home, that you're not your input's not included in all this. But we're going to touch on that as it gets closer and as we finally get in, when we eventually get an agreement. But the big news here, this week in baseball, is the Hall of Fame ceremony, or not the ceremony, the Hall of Fame announcements on Tuesday, 6 o'clock Eastern LB Network. Now, there's a great guy on Twitter, his name is Ryan Thibodeau, at not Mr. Tibbs on Twitter. And what he does, if you're not familiar with him, is he tracks all the Hall of Fame ballots that are made public by the BBWAA, the Baseball Writers Association of America. That doesn't mean all the ballots get made public at that point, but it gives you a generally idea of where the voting stands. And this is where it stands now. There's about 45 percent of ballots that have made known. David Ortiz is 84 percent. I mean, you need 75 percent of ba- you need to be on 75 percent of ballots to make the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds in his last year on the ballot at 78, about 77.7. Roger Clemens at 76.6. Dave Ortiz, by the way, is in his first year on the ballot. And here also Alex Rodriguez is on it. A-Rod's at about 40.6. And yes, something to keep in mind, the numbers you see in the percentages usually drop based on blank ballots, based on ballots that are not made known. So these numbers won't, most likely will not go up. They will only go down in a lot of cases. But this is what you want to watch Tuesday. And this is the whole spectrum of the Hall of Fame. Last year, nobody got in. Now, you had the ceremony for Jeter and Walker and and Marvin Miller and Ted Simmons from the year before. So, the Hall of Fame was able to get by on that. This year, it does seem that David Ortiz is on track to make the Hall of Fame. And you can't discount David Ortiz's credentials. World Series MVP in 2013. Helped Boston end the drought in 2014. Top five of the MVP over a five year period. Hit, hit 315 in 2016 with 38 homers, 127 RBIs. You can't really say you can't put a DH in because Edgar Martinez is in. So, they're on the on field credential, he's a Hall of Famer. But, and I'm not just saying this, you could point to me if you want. If you want to call me a Yankee fan, call me a Yankee fan if you want. There is suspicions of steroids. You go back to the anonymous testing that took place in 2003. It was that anonymous poll out there. or the a survey that was leaked. And David Ortiz was on it. Now, Rob Manfred came out a few years ago, 2016, and said you can't exclude him off that test. So then, if you're a baseball writer... In my opinion, this is just my opinion alone. You can have your own opinion if you'd like. If you're going to keep guys off for suspicion of steroids, how is Dave Ortiz in and Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are not? Because they, I, to me, it's a bad look for baseball if Ortiz gets in on the first ballot and Bonds and Clemens do not, do not get in. To me, Bonds and Clemens have served their punishment. They've waited nine years. With a normal without steroids and all that stuff, they would be in the Hall of Fame. First ballot. Best hitter of the generation in Bonds. Best pitcher of the generation in Clemens. And don't give me, oh, they're already in the Hall of Fame. There's artifacts. There's all this stuff. And I, and I get that. The Hall of Fame's not a church. It's treated like one, but it's not a church. And you could argue this for Kurt Schilling. Curt Schilling probably be in the Hall of Fame if he didn't keep spewing things off that people didn't like are saying some crazy things. He'd probably be in too because he's one of the best postseason pitchers of all time. But if Bonds and Clemens, who are the face of the era, the face of the steroid era that Bud Selig let go by and Bud Selig is in the Hall of Fame, then how are Bonds and Clemens not in? Why are they taking the slings and arrows for everybody else? Where A-Rod can be right now at about 40% of the ballot, A-Rod failed tests. Bonds and Clemens never failed a test. Yes, you can go with Balco with Bonds, the perjury investigation with Clemens, Brian McNamee, the Mitchell Report, all that stuff. I get that. But haven't they paid their price? The Veterans Committee is never going to vote them in the Hall of Fame. So you can't give me, oh, someday the Veterans give their best shot was to hope the electorate in this BBWA got younger, to where the steroids weren't that much of a factor. Because remember, the BBWA partially changed it from 15 years on the ballot to 10 as a slight way to get these guys off the ballot. They never specifically said don't vote for them, but it was hint hints, we're getting them off the ballot as fast as we can. Because they knew by year 15, most likely they would get in. The Hall does not want them to get in, in my opinion. I think they will breathe a sigh of relief if Bonds and Clemens don't get in. And Look, they probably aren't going to get in. They're probably going to end up in the 70 percentile and end up short. But I also had a theory back in December when the Veterans Committee had announced their Hall of Famers. And there was like six guys on that list. Jim Cott, Tony Leva, Manny Minoso. The list goes. There was a couple other guys on the list. I'm forgetting. But my theory back then was, okay, you've got six guys. I think if they have enough guys from the Veterans Committee... That's enough to overshadow if they go without a Hall of Famer for the second straight year. Because Schilling's not getting in. Scott Rowland's closer now. He's about 70%, but he's not getting in this year. Rowland might get in in a year or two. Todd Helton is actually trending higher than a lot of people thought, that 57%. And Helton, you can look at Colorado, but again, Larry Walker's in the Hall of Fame. Helton I think though playing his entire year entire career in Colorado could go back to hurt him. But again, I'm all for putting David Ortiz in the Hall of Fame. But if you're going to put David Ortiz in the Hall of Fame, the Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens need to be in the Hall of Fame as well. I think that's a that's fair. Because to me, you could put a, if you want, you can put it on the plaque if you want. I've always said that. You can put it on the plaque. There's suspicions of steroids and things like that in the Bonds and Clemens cases. I've, I've always said that. But to basically pretend like the steroid era didn't exist doesn't make sense. And the people who, who submit blank ballots, wait, you shouldn't have a vote. I'm sorry. I know Joel Sherman is advocated, well, if you don't believe there's all fame and don't vote, you have a list of so many great players and I get some people want a small Hall and and I understand that too but with all these great players in the list you can't pick one player that you think is a Hall of Famer that also doesn't make any sense and if you keep sending in a blank ballot every year then maybe it's time to look at maybe not voting anymore if you can't find a Hall of Famer that speaks to your expectations We'll see. But again, that's the big drama for Tuesday. Who gets in? Who doesn't get in? If somebody does get in, it'll probably be just Ortiz. If nobody gets in for two straight years, then we really need to look at the process. Because baseball's Hall of Fame process gets criticized a lot more than football and basketball and hockey. And for good reason. Because sometimes it's treated more than what it is. So we'll take one more break. We'll come back and we'll look at some other updates in sports. A little NBA, a little college basketball, and a little bit of the Australian Open. What's gone on so far down under in the first major of the year. Listen listening to Kicking with Keeler on Full Press Radio. We'll wrap up episode 127 after this. Wrapping up episode 127 of Kicking with Keeler. Again, next week we'll be back on Saturday. We'll preview the two conference championship games and talk about a bunch of stuff. That's going to be our, I believe, our last show in January. January's flown by really fast. Uh, but some articles we want to touch on really quickly. Uh, the NBA, I think I want to get into that. There's been a couple of interesting games of late. You saw the Warriors lose to the Pacers in overtime on Thursday, come back, get a Steph Curry buzzer beer to beat the Rockets on Friday. Uh, you have the All-Star vote coming up in the NBA. Which is interesting. There's a couple of stories I wanted to touch on. And we'll give you our standings updates as well because it's actually been pretty close. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to – has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One's the Lakers. We're at 23 and 23. They beat Orlando Friday night. Right now, in seventh in the West, so they be in the playing game against the Clippers. Minnesota will play Portland. And it's a good story. Minnesota is being a 500 team. They, have, I think, they've done a good job. Uh, but the Lakers, you got all the pressure on Frank Vogel. Why is it Frank Vogel's fault? Frank Vogel didn't build this roster. If anything, the GM, Rob Polink is at fault, and LeBron's at fault. If you believe LeBron has that much input on picking a roster, then he's at fault in this case. He won a trade for Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook has been a disappointment. He was benched the other night against Indiana, and I think the Lakers, if they believe Frank Vogel is in the right, should bench him if they feel he's not the best guy in the fourth quarter. And Malik Monk's had a good year. Kamel Anthony's had a good year. Westbrook has not been what the Lakers have wanted. I mean, Minnesota, Washington when they made that trade and got Kuzma and got Harrell, made a better deal. And why is Frank Vogel taking the slings and arrows? Frank Vogel won a championship. Whether you want to give LeBron all the credit for that title or not, Frank Vogel deserves a bunch of credit for that title. If the Lakers don't feel he's the best option, get rid of him keep, and, and make Jason Kidd the head coach. See what happens. Well, you can't now because Kidd's in Dallas. So you can't. You had a chance to keep Jason Kidd. You, you, you weren't able to do it, and Frank Vogel's the coach there. So what's your alternative? Do you get rid of Vogel? Does the, do the Lakers basically just become like, – who, like who would really be the guy you're going to replace him that makes a spark with that team? They're old – LeBron can't do everything by himself. And LeBron's had a really good year. But with Anthony Davis being out, okay, where is this Lakers team actually going to go? In a West that is a lot more wide open than you think. Phoenix is 17, is 18 and 4 away from home. Had a good win against Dallas the other night. They're 35 and 9. Golden State's playing well. Memphis is so fun to watch with John Morant, and he's he's an MVP candidate. Utah's really good. Dallas is good. Denver's over five hundred. So where are the Lakers really in the West? Sixth? Maybe fifth? And yes, LeBron can make a run in the finals, but if he if he's exerting all this energy now, what is he going to have left? So I don't think it's a Frank Vogel problem with the Lakers. I think it's a roster construction problem. I and mean, they don't have the pieces really to make that big of a trade. Uh, the other story this week I found odd was with the Nets. I know this is not about Kyler, uh not Kyler, Kyrie Irving who I still have issues with for not realizing, hey, Kevin Durant's out for the foreseeable future. My team needs me to play home games, and I still won't get the vaccine. Meaning James Harden has to basically play in every home game because Kyrie Irving can't help him out. And the mandates in New York City are not changing anytime soon. Maybe they do down the road by the playoffs, but right now they're not. The issue was the game in Washington on on Wednesday. The Nets are playing the Wizards, and during the game... Uh, Nets assistant coach David Vanterpool sticks his arm out to deflect the ball in play. Now, the NBA fined him $10,000. They find the Nets $25,000. But remember earlier in the show we talked about officiating, how you can't miss things like that? You can't miss that if you're a ref. He was standing right there. I get it a mistake. Refs make mistakes. Officiating is not easy. I've tried it. I've done it at a, at a youth level, and it is hard, and people get on you, and sometimes it's like, why are you getting on me? The game doesn't matter. I remember I kept, uh, I was refereeing games where the score wasn't even kept. And coaches were making big deals like it was the championship if you made a mistake. So officiating is hard. Those who say they can be officials. Think twice before you try it. I think if you can handle criticism from other people, it's not easy to do. And I thought the Wizards' acting coach it was Joseph Blair, I believe, was very calm about his comments. Said, "Look, I can't. You can't miss that." But he wasn't. He didn't give obscene words. He didn't swear. He didn't do anything like that. Didn't make an outrage when he had every right to. But he didn't. He realized, look, my team could have made plays at the end to prevent that from being a cause of why we lost. I think the NBA should have gave Vanterpool a suspension, but at least they gave him a fine. I would, again, I would have taken, I would take it a step further, because I think as much you can say that's a reflex. Yeah, that can't happen. That can't happen. Uh, looking at the standings in the East, Brooklyn, I have game up on Chicago and Miami for the one seed. Milwaukee is the fourth seed. Cleveland's the five seed. I love the way the Cavs are playing right now two and a half back. Philly is three back. Joel Embiid's had a couple great games this week. Uh, Your seven through tens would be Charlotte, Toronto, Washington, and Boston. Knicks have been terrible. Julius Randle, by the way, doesn't want to talk ever since he gave the thumbs down on the fans. Maybe Julius Randles take a look in the mirror and realize that, hey, those fans have been behind your back and made you like a hero over the last year or so. You might want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but again, what, what what, what do fans know, really? But Julius Randle's at fault. Speak to the media. Stop hiding. In the West, we talked about it. Lakers, Clippers, t Wolves, and Blazers are 7 through 10. Sacramento and the Pelicans, two back of that final spot. As far as college basketball, big game going on as we record this show. We didn't give it really a chance to preview it in depth. Kentucky against Auburn. You have every right to think Auburn's the number one team in the country right now. They backed it up. The SEC is a strong league. Uh, Walker Kessler's been big on the boards. you got the good battle between Kessler and Oscar uh, Shibue or Shibwe going on. Um, both those guys have been fantastic, um, and I would love to see this matchup again in a Final Four. I think Auburn plays Kentucky later this year. Uh, the next time the Tigers play the Wildcats will be, actually they don't. So it's the only matchup Auburn and Kentucky have until the SEC Championship, the SEC Tournament. So uh, enjoy this one today if you are watching this right now as you as you can. But I do believe Auburn with Jabari Smith and Kessler and Wendell Green, Bruce Pearl has got the best team in college basketball right now. But that can change. Again, there's a lot of parity in college basketball. You can make a case for Baylor. You can make a case for Purdue, even though they lost Indiana the other day. Um, you can make a case for Gonzaga so or Arizona, even. And Arizona's going to have a tough game coming up this week. But um, there are a lot of teams in the mix, and that's what makes I think, going to be a fun year in college basketball. As we get towards February, we talk more about bubbles and top seeds and teams that can upset your bracket. Um, That's going to make for a lot of interesting buzz around the country. Uh, Some big games this week. Uh, Monday night, Texas Tech and Kansas. Texas Tech beat Kansas early this year. This time, though, it's in Fog Allen. Kansas also plays Kentucky next Saturday. There's a couple big games for Kansas this week. Uh, Tuesday, Michigan State against Illinois. Michigan State just beat Wisconsin on Friday. Good win for them. Now Sparty goes on the road to Illinois, who's played a lot better um, with Coburn. and, And they got um. Uh, Corbell back in that offense so Illinois I think is in a much better position compared to where they were earlier in the year they've got more depth now compared to earlier in the season and that'll only serve them better going forward so keep an eye on the line getting hot at the right time that's on Tuesday 7 o'clock on ESPN and then at 11 o'clock on ESPN number 3 Arizona at number 9 UCLA big test for the Wildcats Uh, You know the Bruins coming off that that run to the Final Four last year. Arizona's only lost in Knoxville Tennessee. And Arizona, really, when you look at their last few games, yes, it's Colorado, Utah, and Stanford. They've blown the doors off of people. Keep an eye on Benedict, Benedict Mathurin, averaging almost 18 points a game. So that matchup, Arizona and UCLA, that is on Tuesday. That should be a lot of fun. And finally, Australian Open. Uh, we've talked about the novak Djokovic situation, not in the field. Uh, the, the court ruled that he had to go home, was deported. Um, you could argue I think that has played an impact on this tournament because I know things have changed with um, ESPN deciding to put more of their matches on plus rather than on ESPN2. I think that's a mistake because you're missing out on a lot of night matches on ESPN2 that I think people loved waking up to. Maybe it's because they wanted to get KJZ and get up more of the the attention in the morning. I'm not so sure. But you had the incident the other day where people were trying to watch Francis Tiafoe and Taylor Fritz, two Americans go at it, and you couldn't find that court on ESPN Plus or ESPN3 or anywhere. And people were really upset. So when you go to these streaming services, you gotta be careful. Like, you got to get those technical things right, because people have a high expectation for Australian Open coverage. It has not been the same this year. Simply hasn't. The tournament itself, I think, has actually had some good storylines. Round of 16s in each, the men's and the women's side, they start tonight. So we'll give you a rundown. Starting with the men, you've got Kekmanovic, the Serbian, who's in only because Djokovic could not play. Remember, Kekmanovic was going to play Djokovic in round one. Instead, he played a lucky loser. The Serbian's kind of been playing as that for Novak in a he has moved on to round four. Tonight he will play Gaël Monfils, the 17th seed from France. Monfils is very entertaining. He's uh, had a good start to the season, uh, so Monfils could make a run in this top half of the draw. Uh, that is not wide open, but semi-wide open. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, Pablo Creno Busta, the 19th seed, against Mar- uh, Marco Berrettini from Italy. Uh, Berrettini had a ten, won a fifth-set tiebreak over the young rising Spaniard Carlos Alcaraz the other day. Berrettini is one of those guys that could create havoc with his serve in his forehand. Carino Busta has been a model of consistency, so that should be a fun match. Uh, The 3 versus the 14, Alexander Zverev, who's rolled pretty easily his first three matches against Denis Shapovalov, the Canadian, who can make matches interesting. uh, But he's kind of on a good even keel right now. He had a four-set win over Riley Opelka, the American, in round three. And then Adrian Matarino, who's been the surprise unseated into the fourth round. Uh, he upset Karazza the other night. He will play Rafa Nadal, who beat Karat Hatchinoff in four sets, but Nadal has looked very dominant in his first few matches. Now, he had a couple of hiccups in the second round, but still won in straight sets, but Nadal has looked better on hard courts than people have thought. Now, the question is, can Nadal beat Zverev, Berrettini, and then whoever wins in the bottom half to get to the final on a court service that's not his best? But remember, if Nadal wins the Australian Open, he now is the all-time Grand Slam leader. And remember, Roland Garros is Nadal's best service at the next major. He could get a two-major lead on Djokovic, potentially. So that's what's at stake for him. I think Nadal could have some trouble, maybe, with Zvera, but he should beat him. It's the, I'm circling Berrettini if he gets to the semis, so maybe a guy that can knock out Nadal. On the bottom half, the Australian Alex de Manura against uh, Sinner from Italy. Sinner's a good young player to watch. Uh, the only one of two Americans left, Taylor Fritz, against Stefano Sitsipas. Fritz, I think, will pull the upset. He did have to go five sets at Batista, Goop, but Fritz is in around round of 16. He talked about using his forehand a little bit more in an aggressive way, so keep an eye on him. Uh, Marin Cilic, who upset the 5 seed Andre Rublev last night, plays uh, Augier Aliasin from Canada. Good young player there. And Michael Cressy, the American. Uh, oh, Maxim Cressy, not Mike Cressy. Maxim Cressy, who won in four sets over the wild card for O'Connell from Australia. Cressy um, got to the finals at Sydney earlier this month, lost to Nadal. Um, he'll play Daniel Medvedev, the two seed. Medvedev's probably the favorite, but cressy has got a serve volley tactic that they can maybe give Medvedev some questions a little bit, a little bit early on. So uh, that's your rundown on the men's side. On the women's side, let's get to that real quick. Ash Barty, the one seed, is probably still the favorite. She's rolled in her first three matches. Um, she plays the American Amanda Nisamova later tonight. Uh, Nisa Mova beat Naomi Osaka in a third set tiebreak in her last match. So she's kind of making that next push forward uh, for American women's tennis. So that should be fun. Jesse Pegula, the 21 seed, the daughter of the owners of the Bills, uh, plays the five seed Maria Sakari. A good matchup tonight between Barbara Krachikova and Victoria Azarenka. Azarenka is dominated. She's a four major champion. Krejcikova, last year's French Open champion. But Azarenka has played as dominant as she's had the last few years. And Madison Keys. Former finals to the U.S. Open, she will play Paula Bedosa, the 8th seed from Spain, who's been good to start the year. On the bottom half, Danielle Collins against Elise Mertens. So another American there in Collins. Simona Hallop, the 14th seed against Elise Corne. Cornet. Cornet upset Muguruza earlier in the tournament. Iga Svitek, the 7th seed, plays Serana Kristea from Romania. And Kaya Kanepi, who's always a dangerous wild card when she's unseeded at these things, she tends to pull upsets. Uh, she will take on the two-seed Sabalenka, who's played a couple three-set matches the last couple times out. She's won them. But people wonder, can Sabalenka finally break through and win a major? Can be, could pull, a surprise or two? Watch that match in the fourth round. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Remember, we're also going to include Olympics in a couple weeks. Remember, February 3rd, the Olympics start in Beijing. Maybe we'll talk about that next week uh, as that gets closer. Maybe we'll try to get somebody on and talk about that a little bit. Uh, what I you can follow me on Twitter at Riconator555 and it's at R E C K Letter Nader 35s. Follow us on Twitter at P underscore coverage at Full Press Radio. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes your at your podcast or search kicking with keyword chance arts radio where you'll find the show. And I want to hear from you, tell me what you like or don't like and email me, rickjkeeler at gmail.com. I'm always happy to hear from you. Remember to download the full press coverage app on your iOS or Android device. It is free. All of our articles, podcasts, live shows are there. So be sure to check that out. Go to pinstripeprospects.com. Check out the work our team's doing covering the Yankees' farm system. And three articles for me this week on Barrett Sports Media. Uh, One was about Dan Orlowski talking about um, his use of the touchscreen and how he's become really the main guy associated with that how he loves that. Um, Adam Schefter was on his own podcast with the new senior football writer uh, for college football, ESPN, Pete Thamel. And Adam Schefter talked about how he never finished his ESPN orientation. That was a fun story. You want to read about that? And my latest one was Ariel Helwani on the I'm Shine podcast, talking about how he kind of feels relieved he's not at ESPN anymore uh, because now he can be used in different avenues and feel a little more freedom. So keep an eye on those three things as well. Uh, and I put out three articles a week every week uh, for Barrett Sports Media. Uh, we just got a new editor, Ian Castleberry. I want to give him a shout-out as well. Um, we have a good team. Michi Ravino's, Jason Barrett, the whole nine yards. Uh, that team has become synonymous for sports media news. And I'm always glad to be a part of it. Uh, so thanks to all for tuning in this week. And next week, we'll look at the championship, Hall of Fame reaction, uh, Olympics preview potentially. Australian Open will be in the championship matches. And um, we'll have some fun along the way. So until then, thanks for kicking with me, Ricky Keeler. I want you to enjoy the football this weekend. And we will see you back here next week to wrap it up again. Thanks again, everybody. the godfather at champakacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at champakacasino.com welcome to the family vdw group no purchase necessary Avoid where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus okay round 2 name something that's not boring laundry ooh a book club computer solitaire huh Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Chumba. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No work by law, plus and apply. See website for details.